Hi, it's a Sunday afternoon, and I want to uh, say a few words. I totally forgot that uh, Friday was Chav Sivan, which is the anniversary, among other things, of Tachvatat, of the Cossack massacres um, of 1640-1649. I can't believe I forgot that. <clears throat> and I want to say a few words about that. In light of contemporary events, um, point out to a, what I consider a, a historically interesting or maybe frightening a point. So today's talk is being sponsored by a coalition, I guess, of small uh, sponsors. One is Eitan Ariel Shuchman, uh, thank you, and then David and Susan Kaplan and family, especially their daughter Shoshana, who was a, a very good companion with my daughter Elisheva uh, Shoshana, and uh, Alex Fuchsman over in um, Elizabeth, and uh, Daniel and Lee Bastin here in Baltimore. Uh, so thanks to all for sponsoring this. Uh, as I said, today it should be 22 C1, so Friday was 20 C1, and I know I did a podcast on this in the past, so if you want a detailed description, at least I'm going by memory over here, a detailed description of the Xeris uh, Tachvatat, as is reflected in the classic Jewish sources, that's what I do sometimes, so I remember I read it great lengths, I seem to remember, from the Yavain Metzula, which is of course the book written in 1650 or so, right after it happened, um, Lately, as you know, I've, I've undertaken as a sort of a public service to try to uh, familiarize people with some of the classic um, Jewish chronicles and historical sources. That's not to say that they're all accurate, you know, uh, but they're fairly accurate. Anyway, these are the markers of Jewish memory. Uh, from Jews who were had any kind of education down the centuries, always had a copy of the Vim at home and the, uh, you know, the Sheba Yehuda and the Emekabach and uh, perhaps uh, the Samach David of David Gans, and so forth. There's a whole uh, library shelf of classic from Jewish sources, and I always define them uh, by the terms of the Mishnah Buru, who says you can't read history books on Shabbos, because the Shulchan Aruch says that, but these books you can read. You see them? These ones you can read. <laughs> so they have a kind of Shavisa, you might say, like, you see fun, is like that, and all that. And so... Um, that's what I wanted to uh, mention, pieces of it. Now, I talked about this at length in the past. I seem to remember that. I'm hoping soon, by the way, spoke with Chaim Chernoff the other day, to set up my um, a website in such a way, or an app, or whatever they call it. I don't understand it. But, you know, that, that you'll be able to, you, the listener, will be able to find what you want easily. It'll be more uh, classified and things like that. I'm hoping that'll be in the near future. But I'm keeping my mouth shut till it actually happens. But I do recall... Uh, reading extensively from uh, the Vein Metzula, which is written in 1650, as I said, uh, all about the Xeris Tachbetat. And uh, and some of the stories are true. You know, some are some not so true, but some of the stories are true. And this was by a Holocaust survivor of that time, Nathan Hanover. I mean, he was in Poland. In fact, he describes running away from the Cossacks. Uh, so it's very dramatic, but very depressing stuff because so many thousands of Jews... Uh, were murdered al Kiddush Hashem. The women were all violated and raped. Uh, you know, Kiddush Hashem, I guess you'd say. And uh, it was just a terrible period. That's not the place you wanted to be. <clears throat> now, in previous years, long ago, if I would I would use the word Cossacks and the Polish nobles, all the rest. But today, in the year 2023, you, the public, are much more familiar with the basic geography of Eastern Europe than ever before because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So you can look at the map now, contemporary wise. We can hit on it in a second online or whatever, and you'll see now in Eastern Europe, there's like a, a, what used to be the Polish Empire was now a set of separate countries. 
There is, of course, Russia to the right. I'm not talking about Russia. But there is uh, the country of Poland today, which is much smaller. There's Ukraine, which used to be a province of Poland. There's Belarus, which used to be a province of Poland, ruled by the Poles. There was Lithuania and Latvia, same thing. So, uh, but you understand the ethnicities over there. So just like today, I'm sure a lot of Americans are not so educated. They say, what's with the Russians and the Ukrainians fighting each other? Aren't they all the same thing? What's the difference between Russian and Ukrainian? And there is a difference. You understand? They're not familiar. And what seems like garnish to us, after all, they're all white, they're Christian. They have a little bit of religious differences, but it's all looks like this. the Eastern European, they're Slavic, they talk the same languages. They have a lot of culture in common, to be perfectly honest. doesn't matter. The differences are huge, and thousands and thousands of people have been um, dying and, and being maimed in this war, which started February 24th last year. I remember it was my birthday. Thank you for the birthday, President Putin, uh, when they've had this major Russian invasion, and now this Ukrainian counterattacks and all this kind of business. So now let's transport ourselves back from the 20th century. Today, the Ukraine is the one being attacked, and is appealing to the world for um, moral and, and other support. As we know, Zelensky. Uh, Jews have always looked at the Ukrainian situation with um, with complexity, with a certain, uh, how should I put it, uh, uh, conflictedness. I can't say cognitive dissonance because it's not like they like them and dislike them, you know, because we've had a good and bad, very bad experience in Ukraine. But on the other hand, the situation is complicated. So to be very specific, we had the fact that um, there was this tremendous uprising of the Ukrainians in 1648 and 49, in which they killed, uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands of Jews at least, and 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 uh, you know, some mass violations of the women and things like that, which was uh, a specific uh, thing of its own. Uh, they had it out for Judaism, Sefrei Hatoros Karu Lekroim. All the safer Torahs they tore into pieces and used for socks. And they took the tefillin straps of the dead Jews to use, you know, help with their shoes, tie their socks. And busted tefillins, which they smashed, were, were all over the city. So he's talking about the aftermath of the pogroms. And they paved the streets with Jewish books, and some of them, just for the fun of it, they uh, shot out of cannon to see the, the paper of the Jewish books and the Sefer Torahs, uh, you know, explode. So, who knows, they really took it out on Judaism also. Uh, and, the you know, the tortures are, uh, are legendary. Like I said, I've done it before. The one that always sticks in my mind is where they took the Kazakhs, took a, a pregnant Jewish woman, cut them open, pulled the baby out, stuck in a live cat, sewed him back up, chopped off her arms, and she should die in exquisite agony. I mean, you got to be really a sick dog to even think that one up. But in Ukraine at that time, it was like that. And it, it's probably like, I mean, I don't know what it's like today because I haven't been there. But in World War II, it was like that. They did this to Jews, and they did this to Poles um, in World War II. So it's not a place you want to fall on your hands. Just to balance the picture... Um, if a Jew converted, he didn't get killed. So it's not like Hitler. And number two, for some reason, as far as I can see, if I remember correctly, um, the men were all butchered and, and, and destroyed, and some women were horribly mistreated, as I said before. 
Um, but just for the uh, historical record, I think that the women, by and large, uh, were not killed. They were just violated. I'm not excusing that, but that's just interesting. It said the ugly ones and the old women, that's what he says, were all killed. So this is uh, an Eastern European kind of violence, which is uh, a sexual violence, which uh, which the Russian army did at the end of World War II in Germany. Um, is just interesting. Uh, you know, they violated uh, in mass situations, you know, millions of German women. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not criticizing because it was after World War II and what happened to the, what the Germans did to the Russians. I, I'm not criticizing, but it, it's just interesting. So the reason I mention is in the aftermath of the Tachvatat, there were a veldt of dead guys and at the same time, a veldt of live women whose husbands and stuff like that have been killed. You, you, you get what I'm saying. And uh, I don't know how many of them were pregnant from this, that, and the other. Their vase. It's a, it's a terrible episode in Jewish history. And this is the time of the year it happened. Now, the uh, like I say, the actual details, town by town, I've done in the past. If you're interested in this sad story, you can uh, you can listen. You know, you look it up, you'll find it. Uh, in the heart of the story, however... Uh, because had many towns where terrible things happened, uh, was Nemirov and Tulchin and, and Polnoya. Uh, the idea of Chaf Sivon as a day to commemorate this tragedy is interesting because when the pogroms were over and the Jews, you know, like tried to get their act together again, being bloody and, and and busted. So the big rabbis and people like that in Poland wanted to make a, a Yom HaShoah, so to speak. And it wasn't like after World War II where the, where, what's the name, the uh, Chazanish killed it. That's not what happened in 1648. Uh, they, they, and they made Chav Sivon. Uh, but why? What I mean to say is like this. Suppose, let's just pretend for a second that the Chazanish did not oppose a Yom HaShoah. Okay? Could have been. So then they would pick a day for for from Jews, let's say, for example, to commemorate the Holocaust. What day would you pick? When the worst again happened? When they uh, uh, shot Rolchan Wasserman? You know, when, when they buried people alive? You, you know what I mean? The Germans did so much over so long and so many terrible things. But what day would you pick? Or to be the other way around. Any day you pick is as good as any other day. Now, it didn't happen because, like I said before, the Ghazanish killed it. And instead, as you and I know, what's organically evolved in my adulthood is that, you know, they, they kind of transfer it to Tishabov. And I bet you most shuls everywhere now, or I can't speak for that, but a lot of them, they have an extra keen or two or three at the end for the Holocaust. Isn't that right? You know? Like from um, Rabbi Schwab and the Baba Rebbe, somebody reminded me yesterday, and Weissmandel, you know that it's it, it's sort of tagged along with a little tugboat to the main kinos of Tishabub, which of course commemorate the Churm uh, Beis Hamikdash, but also have four or five of the Crusader things in there. So it's that's the the question of the wandering memory is an interesting one by itself. How the Yom HaShoah sensitivity.
has kind of wandered from place to place and time and time and seems to have settled now without any kind of formality whatsoever into some kind of uh, adjunct to Tisha B'Av, uh, which does follow Jewish tradition. You remember in the keynotes they say that you don't add a day, but you stick it on Tisha B'Av. No, that's the origin of the Crusader things. Because the Crusader things did not happen on Tisha B'Av, and nevertheless, you know, the accounts of it have entered um, sacred memory in Judaism as an appendage to Tisha B'Av. Uh, okay. But having said that, in 1648, they did come up with a day, Chav Sivan. Now, there are two things about Chav Sivan, which was two days ago. And I'm going to be speaking about what happened two days ago, and I'm also going to be speaking about what happened in a few days from now. It's my intention. Uh, because they went from town to town, there was massacre on Monday, and another massacre on Wednesday, and another massacre on the following Sunday, and so forth and so on. So, um, Chav Sivan was a day that Rabbeinu Tom, back in the 1100s, had proclaimed as a fast day and a slichos, slichos day because of the Kedoshe Blois, of the town of Blois, as you say in English, Blois, uh, back in the 1100s. And again, I did this in a podcast. I'm not going to hazard over. If you're interested in what I'm talking about, you'll listen. And since they had, so in other words, since they had the um, precedent of somebody like Rabbeinu Tom, who was considered, you know, El Supremo, and if he said that you should make it a day of slichos and all that, you can't say he's a reform rabbi adding some chaduchim, you know what I mean? If somebody of that stature sanctioned that there should be a day of slichos, okay. So, in 1648-49, the Jews in Poland, among whose leaders was the Tosis Yontif, uh, they kind of agreed that they would make chafsiv on the day, which means they're not anything new because the Rebbeinu Tom already said that's a day of slichos, but in addition to the slichos of the 1100s that Rabbeinu Tom instituted with others to commemorate the uh, the terrible massacre in Blois, they now appended to that a whole bunch of slichos to say for the Kedoshim in Tachvatat, the victims of the Kazakhs. <clears throat> That's how it goes. Specifically, however, um, what happened when Chav Sivan which was June something or other, 1648, June 4th, something, whatever, was um, what they called the Gzera of Nemirov. There was a city, Nemirov, which was a parent city. This is supposed to be in the Golden Age of Poland. When I say the Golden Age of Poland, Poland includes, as I said before, the Polish Empire. Polish Empire includes, as a very big chalik of it, Ukraine. Ukraine, therefore, was uh, uh, characterized by Polish landlords, uh, and Polish, um, you know, uh, communities who live in a mass of Ukrainians. And the landlords and noblemen lived in palaces and had their private armies and sometimes fortified cities. And the peasantry in the, you know, in, in the countryside and even in the cities, Ukrainians strongly resented this. Right? They experienced it as a great oppression. And the Jews were hooked up with the Poles for various reasons. And therefore, the Jews were part of the problem. Plus, they're not Christians. So you combine those two together, the religious hatred and the national ethnic hatred, and that's what made the outbreak of the Ukrainians so toxic to the Jews that they were subjected to all these tortures and horrible deaths. Now, on 20th of Sivan, which was two days ago, the city of Nemirov, which I'm sure I read in the past, 
um, last year probably, or two years ago at the most, was a large Jewish community. And what happened was that the Poles, because uh, I'm going somewhere with this, you know, the Poles uh, fooled them. Instead of reading the whole thing all over again, let me um, read a short paragraph that will summarize it. Uh, the Kazakh, after the defeat of the Pol- Polish army in Korsun, the Kazakh troops and the peasant bands under their leader advanced against the fortified town of Nemirov, which had 6,000 Jewish inhabitants. At least that's what it says in the name of And where the fugitives from the neighborhood were assembled, and was Jews from all over the district had run there. So all through the Ukraine was this huge countryside full of Ukrainian gunmen who will destroy any Jew they see by torture. And there were these cities that were fortified centers, and that's where the Poles held out. So the Jews flocked to Nemirov. It was a wealthy community and had many prominent learned men. The Jews who were in possession of the fortress had closed the gates, but the Ukrainians of the town, disguised in Polish uniforms, urged the Jews to open them for their friends. <coughs> in other words, they said, the people on the outside are Polish troops coming to help us. They're not Cossacks coming to bust in here. And the people on the outside who were Cossacks had Polish flags and stuff like that. So they were disguised. You understand what I'm saying? They were disguised. As it says in Hebrew, um, The Jews saw the army coming from far away. It was terrifying. But they couldn't tell what army it is. Because in those days you didn't have uniforms like we have now. The Jews went to the fortified part of the town, the citadel, and locked it up. What did the Cossacks do? They made Polish flags. All these people look alike, he says. The only difference you can tell is by their flags and their banners. The Poles look alike than the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians living in the town knew about this. And they said, oh, these are Poles coming to help open the gates to them. And then that's, of course, they came in and, and committed the massacre. Okay? They came in with swords. And they came in with uh, spears and with, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, uh, hatchets, like things like that. Asim are, are things that they use the farmers use, you know, to cut things. I forget what the term is. You see, but, you know, they, 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 it, it can really mess you up. And uh, all these horrible implements. They did the same thing in World War II, by the way. The exact same thing. And, um, uh, saw some hawks and makles, some had sticks. And they killed everybody. And all the women and the young girls, they violated. And a lot of women, knowing what fate awaited them, jumped into the water and drowned. Those they rather drowned than be violated by these Gaim. The Gam Harbanoshim and a lot of men uh, ran into the water, jumped into the water, but the Greeks, uh, the, the Kazakhs jumped after them and cut them to pieces. Right? Till the water was red with blood. That's what he says over there. And there's all these stories about these uh, big Rabbonim and Gedolim and how they were tortured and so on and so forth. In fact, in fact, um, so that's Nemirov. Uh, in fact, that's the site of the famous story, uh, which is, I think, the most famous story that has entered into literature. 
Jewish literature, other literature um, from Nemirov. I remember many Yiddish novels from the last century or a hundred years ago about this, Yiddish novels, uh, which was that this girl was seized by the Kazakh and he was going to, uh, 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 let's use the word, marry her. I mean, and he, he meant that, you know, she'll become a concubine of his. That's how it works in that part of the world. And she said, um, you know, I'm a magician and I have black magic. And he said, bull. And she said, you know, I can do a hocus pocus and you can shoot me. I'll be like Superman. The, the bolts will bounce off. He said, I don't believe it. Try me. And so she said, she said, hocus pocus. And actually she said, Shema Yisrael, Shema Chod. And he shot her and killed her. Because she wanted to die rather than fall into his hands. It's a very famous story. So that happened to Chavsibon. But what's perhaps more interesting for my purposes is what happens right afterwards, because about a week later or so, something like that, on June 10, uh, 1648, so today's June 11, you know, June 10, whatever the Hebrew date was, um, they came to Tulchin, a different town, and uh, here, the Jews um, were organized into a JDL, you know, into a, a militia of some sort, and they fought off, together with the Poles, the Kazakh assault, there's a movie, I think I'm sure I must have mentioned in the past, called With Fire and Sword. It's a Polish movie with English subtitles. It's like the f- most famous Polish uh, novel. I'm, I'm serious. And it's like Gone with the Wind of Poland. And the guy who wrote it was Sienkiewicz, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1906. And it's a highly romanticized, dramatized novel about the Cossack massacres, about the Cossack uprising. Because the Poles were also massacred. So the guy who wrote it was a guy writing about the bad stuff they did to the Polacks, uh, which is true. I mean, they took Polish Catholic priests and nailed them to doors and burned them and stuff like that. They did a lot of bad stuff to the Poles. Uh, I'm not denying that. I'm just concentrating what happened to the Jews. And therefore, by fate, the Jews and the Poles were stuck together and their only hope of survival was to hang together, but they didn't see it that way. And so when it came to Tulchin, uh, you had the very famous and dramatic story where, um, which again is like a, a few days after Chavsivan, so it wasn't, I mean, today's June 11, but probably a week from today is when this happened in the Jewish calendar, you know, shortly before Scottish Thomas, something like that. And uh, the Kazakhs, the Ukrainians, said to the Poles, You betray the Jews and hand them over to us, and then we'll leave you alone. But the Jews and the Poles had sworn a, an alliance that we won't betray you, won't betray us, but you know what that's worth. In, the, in that part of the world. And so, without going through the details, the Polacks handed them over. They said to the Jews, give us all your weapons and we'll protect you. You could already tell what was what, what they had in mind. And the rabbi of the Jews, because a lot of Jews said like this, every Jew of 22 will take down all these Polak mamzers with us for betraying us. And the rabbi at that time said, don't do that. We have to all die uh, for our fellow Jews. Listen to this. The big rabbi sold the Jews in the town who are facing death. Listen to me. We're, we're in Gauls here. If you hurt the Polish, the Polish nobles, then all the other Polacks will hear about this, including the king and the others. And they'll have mass pogroms all over Europe. 
certainly all over Poland as a result of this. Notice, they'll punish the other Jews because we, the Jews here in Tolchin, killed the Poles, even though they deserved to die for betraying us. We have to, you know, um, just we just say like, we're in a bad spot, and this is mina shemayim, and we just have to makabel this and die. We're no better than our fellow Jews who died a, a week ago, and what are you going to do? You know, uh, if, if 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 our time is up, our time is up. Let's dive and maybe. Maybe, 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 maybe the Cossacks have pity on us and take our money instead. And um, and the Jews listened to him. So you know what happened. The Poles betrayed them. The Cossacks came in and killed everybody. So they all died of Kiddush Hashem. And then the Cossacks went ahead and killed the Poles. And the Poles said, I thought we had a deal. And the Cossacks said to them, the same way you did it to the Jews, we're doing it to you. <laughs> in other words, you have no basis for claiming that you lied because you lied to your own comrades, the Jewish ones, and then he killed, you know, they, they, they killed the Poles, including the Polish Duke and all the rest. They tortured him to death, etc., etc. They sawed his head off with a saw, you know. Okay? Uh, now, the rabbi was right because this had the effect of the news spread and had the effect all over the rest of Poland of saying, let's not betray the Jews because it won't do us any good. So if we have to fight, we have to fight with our allies, the Jewish allies, so we won't betray them, they won't betray us. Okay? Uh, these uh, Poles in, in, in Tolchin all died because they betrayed the Jews. And all over Poland, the other princes, the Polish nobles that heard about this, they did tzedakadin, meaning they said that heaven punished our fellow Poles because they broke their sworn word to the Jews. And it never happened again during the Cossack War that the Poles betrayed the Jews. Even though the Cossacks again and again tried to stick again, hand this over to the Jews and you'll be safe. Right? Okay? But the Poles never believed him again. Had this not happened, then all of the Jews in Poland would have been killed. Because everywhere, no, the Cossacks would have been smart. They would have not killed the Poles in Tolchin. And that would have sent a message that if the Poles hand over the Jews, then the Poles get away. And all the Poles would have handed the Jews over. So look, now now stick this over to, to the 20th century with the Holocaust. You see what I'm saying? And this business of betraying people, not betraying people, has become more part of the warp and woof of the history of Jews living in, in that part of the world. It's a, it's, a terrible, it's a terrible business. And it raises the question on both sides, you know. Suppose, God forbid, something like this happened again. Would your friends betray you or would they risk their own lives? I mean, you know, it's a, it's a hard one. Or would you risk your life to betray, you know, to help someone else who's not on your team? That's a hard question to answer. The reason I mention this is because it's very intriguing to me. By the way, there's one more town uh, that, that's a, a part of this, and that's Polnoa, where Oberstein is from. These are all in, in, the, in the very belly button of central Poland. And uh, 
uh, what do you call it? Here was killed uh, Shimshon Esther Polar. I forgot, I, I, I thought he was in the other one, but he's in Shimshon Esther Polar. And he had predicted he was the big Makobo at that time. I have a safer from him that was given me many, many years ago. A thin safer by uh, my friend Hale Flamer. And I uh, haven't looked in a long time. He's he beg, very big into uh, Gematria's. He was like a serious Makobo, you know. And uh, uh, what do you call it? Here, a lot of people, you know, jumped in the water and 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 and, uh, and drowned themselves, uh, but the rest were massacred inside the synagogue. This is a terrible business, just a terrible business. Okay, so well, all the details are in the Yemei Metzula, and uh, you know, if you're a real historian, you look at the Polish records and this and that and the other. But why bother? Now, um, the reason I mention this is so interesting to me because uh, you see a lot of this today in terms of those who will say um, America should dump Israel and then the Arabs will leave them alone. You get it? Uh, the reason that everybody's against America or other European or whoever's listening, whatever your country is, is because they're backing Israel. Um, if they don't, then Israel will go down, but they'll be okay. But it's not true. Because the jihadists want to take over the world anyway. Just like the Kazakhs wanted to wipe out all Poland. The jihadists want to, um, you know, take over Europe and America. It was up to them. Uh, they were playing for world domination. And so Israel's to some degree, you know, uh, holding this back as an ally of the West, I guess you'd say, or something like that. But uh, there are a lot of people who don't see it that way. And they'll say, you know, if you dump Israel and Israel goes down the tubes, then we'll have p peace and quiet. It's it's a little bit like Hitler in the 30s when exactly this idea was out there. It says if you give them Austria, you give them Czechoslovakia, you give them the other countries, they end up peace and quiet. As Chamberlain famously said, we'll have peace in our time. But it didn't work because the bear was hungrier than that. And was simply using uh, clever tactics to separate the enemies. So if you play mind games and you say, you know, if there are three guys against me, I'll tell two of them. Two of you get rid of the other guy and I'll leave you alone. Then when there's two left, I'll tell one guy, kill the other guy, I'll leave you alone. Then one guy be left all by himself, I'll be able to finish him off. It's that, it's that kind of mentality. And it's just interesting that this rabbi back in 1648 in Tulchin already hopped at. And... Um, what can I say? Uh, it proved uh, vital to Jewish survival, at least according to the book, according to the Yavim Mitzvah. So um, you always have to watch out for uh, sneaky enemies who ultimately have total destruction in mind, but think tactically. Um, and therefore, in terms of tactics, one of the oldest tactics is a divide and conquer. And therefore, you have allies try to break them up. In uh, the case of Israel, so, you know, number one ally has been America, for uh, for better or worse. Including Biden, by the way. Including Biden. And uh, a lot of this has become highly politicized. I get it. And, you know, the trends in the country are worrisome. But so far, anyway, it's in there. And the argument against it is, is this brings America a lot of um, hatred. It does, but there's a lot of hatred even without Israel. Okay? Uh, and so the, the general problem of the overall hatred of the West and the overall hatred of America has deep roots 
having nothing has to do with the nature of the American civilization and culture and political ideas, as opposed, which are opposed, which are not in consonance with old-fashioned religions uh, in many ways, including, by the way, Orthodox Judaism. But uh, we don't have any uh, violent uh, intentions against America or anything like that. But there are there are those that do. So when you consider this week is the week of the commemoration of the Xeris uh, Tachbatat, among other things, but I'm talking about the Chmelnitsky massacres of the 1640s, which we know left such a heavy imprint on our people. So it's just uh, disturbing, interesting, whatever you want to call it, to call this idea that already back then, the enemy was using this idea of just dump the Jews and you'll be safe. You understand? Get rid of the Jews and you'll be safe, which turned out to be a lie. Uh, had it turned out to be true, then the Jews were, would have really been up the creek, as the author of the book says. So I think this is very interesting food for thought as we uh, engage in this season. Pretty soon we're starting the three weeks, and, you know, culminating in Tishabov. Uh, allies and friends come and go. That's, that's what you see in the world, particularly in Eastern Europe. Consider this well. At that time, the Poles were the allies of the Jews and the Ukrainians were the enemies. Uh, today, the, you know, the, the Ukrainians and the Poles are trying to be friends with Israel for their own reasons. They have a lot of this bad history to try to live past. They don't want to disavow Chemelnitsky and these other Cossacks from 1640. They look at them as national heroes. We have this problem with all the countries in, the, um, in Eastern Europe. I did a, a, a lectures on this. Uh, and it is always complicating, to say the least, any rapprochement between Israel on the one hand and these Eastern European countries on the other. Um, all these countries now see jihadists and others as, as mutual enemies. And so sometimes the idea of the enemy of my enemy is my friend takes a hold. But on the other hand, there's a lot of bad blood uh, that has happened in the past. And this is the time of the year when these things are remembered, at least in Jewish sacred memory. I just wanted to share that point over there. Once again, I want to thank the coalition of sponsors today. And with that, I bid you a good week.